Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's going to be traveling to the kitchen this year. It's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. And he'll also be traveling to the kitchen and the dining room and is thinking of using his frequent fire miles to go all the way to the patio. <laughs> He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Yeah, and in all seriousness, if you do choose to travel beyond the walls of your house and even perhaps beyond the patio to somewhere else, let's just all be safe, be together next Thanksgiving and holiday season safely with all the people uh, who we love, even if we didn't get to see all of them this year. That sounds great, Seth. Everyone be safe. Remember, if you're on an airplane while you're on the plane itself, it's pretty safe. It's just getting there and when you get off that are the big concerns. That's right. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, the world is finally getting a COVID-era mega merger. Plus, a happy ending to something a listener and apparently plenty of other people complained about. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with the week's news. Yeah, Ben, up until last week, we could say for all the turmoil COVID-19 has caused around the world, it hadn't resulted in any mega liquidations or mergers. Look, plenty of airlines have filed for bankruptcy, but most of them, pretty much all the big ones, are still flying. And, And you certainly had some combinations around the world, but again, No mega mergers, nothing that would make a headline in the Wall Street Journal, certainly not a front page one. Uh, But now Korean Air is trying to buy Asiana Airlines. So this is a market with two major airlines that would become one. And we're talking like a $16 billion revenue airline in normal times, which of course these aren't, which is the point of the merger, not a $16 billion uh, company today, but almost no airline is. But For perspective, that would be like a top 10 airline in the world. Korean Air by itself, also for perspective, certainly not small, but closer to number 20 in the world. If you look at a ranking of airline revenues, like the one Airline Weekly does, for example. Well, Ben, Asiana Airlines was not in good shape before this. And I think that's one lesson of this is that airlines that were in really good shape going into the crisis generally have managed through it. And the ones that were shakier going in, that's when you get into real trouble. So it was the shakier of those two airlines in a market that's not always easy. And I guess this is probably just the best outcome to sell. It would basically be selling two thirds of itself, give a controlling stake to its larger and generally more successful competitor, Korean Air. I think this is fascinating, Seth, and it shows the unprecedented times we're in. In the United States, as you know, Seth, and many of our listeners know, when airlines propose a merger, there's usually some evaluation by the U.S. Justice Department of, will this be good for consumers or does it create some sort of 
strength, competitive strength that the marketplace wouldn't naturally adjust. And therefore, do we want to oppose it or impose some conditions upon the merger and things like that? So, for example, it's hard to believe that American and United could merge, right? Even if they decided, both companies decided they wanted to, it's hard to believe the government would let that happen. Think of Chicago, for example, where both American and United operate big hubs, and then you consolidate all that in one carrier, what that would likely do to fares and and things in Chicago. And so here now in Korea, you have essentially that idea happening, these two big airlines in Korea, and saying, we're just going to be one airline in Korea. Now, you can also say that maybe Korea didn't need two airlines. And you can go a little further down the road, down to Malaysia. And there's been talks about AirAsia and Malaysian Airline potentially merging at some point. Mm -hmm. Very different business models there, right? And so that might be more fraught with things. And the Korean deals are really announced deal. But it tells you that um, in difficult times, And when it forces everybody to rethink what business are we really in here and what is the world really going to be like, things that didn't seem possible become possible. And the idea of the Koreas having, of of South Korea having one big airline called Korean or called Asiana or Korean Asiana or whatever they're going to call it, right, actually doesn't sound crazy and is probably more stable for the employees of those airlines. It's probably more stable for the customers in terms of service disruption or lack of, you know, less service disruption and so on. And it probably allows Korea as a national airline system. And I don't mean national in a government owned sense, but national airline sense can be more competitive with Japan or China or other places who are trying to carry connection traffic not to go over Korea, right? So I think this deal makes sense and it makes sense in the context of COVID. And I think it's not unlikely that we'll see some other mergers proposed around the world that are of this type, meaning not likely to have happened before COVID, but now make some sense. And in a very tiny way, Seth, when we talked last week about Southwest going into O'Hare and to Bush Intercontinental in Houston, it's the same kind of idea. It's, hey, things are available to us because of COVID that weren't available before. How can we be aggressive and maybe change the long-term competitive dynamic? And that's what's happening in Korea. And I think it's a good thing for World Airlines, actually. You had a little slip of the tongue there at one point. You said the Koreas, and my mind went to <laughs> now imagine if they could get Air Koryo in yeah. on this thing, the North Korean airline. That would really be something. South Korea. <laughs> exactly, and, and and that would that would have implications far beyond the airline industry if they could do that. Let, let's hope. That could one day be a consideration, not because I care about whether Corio is part of Korean <laughs> Air, but because it would say something about the prospects for regional and, and world peace. You know, I was about to say, imagine this would be like if Air Canada and WestJet merged, for example, you know, two, a, a sizable market with two airlines going to one. And then I remembered. Look, Air Canada merged with its only competitor. I mean, essentially acquired it, Canadian Airlines, right? Right. Uh, the twenty-something years ago, and that was for for people who don't know. Yeah, there were two big airlines in Canada. Basically, Air Canada more focused in the east, Canadian more focused on the west, but another you know, global airline. 
And that was exactly this situation, right? Where they could say, hey, look, this airline isn't sustainable anyway. So, so, so either you do this or you lose an airline. And your Chicago example, the only way, and I mean, it's not going to happen, but the only way that could, could ever happen is if one of those airlines was just about to disappear anyway, right? And, and, and they could make the argument that Doug Parker made when America West bought U.S. Airways, which is, look, that airline's either going to disappear and all the jobs are going to disappear or we're going to do this and save most of the jobs and those sorts of things. And, and that basically is the argument here. Delta, of course, a key joint venture partner of Korean Air. After all those years of it not coming together, finally it did. And unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot of time after uh, the joint venture started before we were in this COVID era. But clearly, this merged company is going to remain in Delta's orbit. I know some people in the US in particular are probably thinking, well, Asiana is a member of Star Alliance. Of course, member of Star Alliance and partnered with airlines all around the world in the Star Alliance. Uh, What about United? What about those other partners? But Delta, we should make the point, has the far deeper partnership with one of those airlines. It's in a full profit and loss sharing joint venture, whereas United and Asiana are, are, are more arm's length partners. I think you're exactly right, Seth. I think this will be if this merger happens and if it's approved and it actually happens, Korean is is the surviving entity in a sense. I mean, they they may for lots of marketing and employee and political reasons, the Asiana name may stay around in some facets in some way, but it'll be a Korean airline airline and it'll be part of Delta. I agree with that. And that's probably good for Delta in a way, in the sense that as they think about their partners around the world, they want strong partners in the regions, in the economies that they can't themselves operate in, right? Delta can't operate locally in and out of Korea, and Korean can. And so having strong partners is probably good for Delta as well, just as American United want their partners to be strong in their relative geographies also. And United has a strong partner in that region. It's just not Asiana. It's all Nippon over in Japan. That's United's big joint venture in the region. American has one with Japan Airlines. So Asiana was in that regard, if you sort of thought of it of sort of the four big airlines between Japan and South Korea, Asiana was kind of always the odd man out. It was the one of the four that didn't have a joint venture partner in the U.S. and and wasn't ever probably going to have one because when the music stopped, there just wasn't a chair for Asiana because the big three in the U.S. had on the pond Japan Airlines and and Korean Air. Well, an update now on a story we first covered earlier this month in a listener question. You might remember a listener wrote in complaining about a policy American Airlines had and asking whether it could change and impact on the Americans with Disabilities Act and so forth. The policy essentially barred some heavy motorized wheelchairs from being carried by regional jets flying for American. NPR first reported the story. It all seemed to start when Canada required some more specific rules from airlines that fly to Canada. And American came up with a number that ended up being too low for the wheelchairs. Well, American said it was reviewing that following complaints. And now, sure enough, NPR is reporting American has reversed the policy. The airline said, quote, after close consultation with our safety team and our aircraft manufacturer partners, 
We've eliminated the conservative weight limits that temporarily impacted our ability to carry some mobility devices and wheelchairs on our smaller regional aircraft. We are committed to learning from this as we redouble our focus on improving the travel experience for our customers with disabilities, unquote. The airline said the FAA has approved the new guidelines. This is great, Ben. It seems like common sense prevailed. It it was sort of this confluence of things that ended up causing a a bad situation. It didn't start with Americans saying, let's ban wheelchairs. (laughs) It started with something else, which ended up with some wheelchairs basically being banned. Well, the argument that a lot of people use to stop changes like American had originally proposed is the whole slippery slope argument, right? Okay, if we can't take a 300-pound wheelchair on a regional jet, does that mean that someday we won't be able to take that on a big jet or that 300 pounds becomes 200 pounds or things like that, right? And that's part of the concern around these kinds of regulations and why those impacted by them fight so hard against them happening. And I actually think in this case, American got to the right point kind of in a circuitous way. And um, I'm sure that the when they were first thinking about this, they they were thinking of the operational kind of things and unfortunately didn't have someone in the room and said, hey, let's think about what this really means and how this is going to be perceived by our customers and such. And I think the statement in their press release that said we're committed to learning from this suggests that American, that's that's their I'm sorry kind of statement, right? We messed yeah. up here and we're not going to make this kind of dumb mistake again. Yeah, I'm sure this is not a it wasn't a holistic decision by by the airline. It started again just with sort of these technical considerations and ended up doing it. And look, we we talked about it last time. This is this is tough in aviation, right? There are things you can't do. If you go back to there are a lot of turbo props flying at this point for the major airlines, but if you go back to those, yeah, there, there were things that you just couldn't do. That you know, uh, that if you wanted to go to Jamestown, New York, you couldn't go there if you had certain needs because you could only get there on, on a small turboprop. You had to instead fly to Buffalo or somewhere else and, and just drive from there. And, and everybody understood that. So it, it's not that there's not truth in the idea that certain things just can't be accommodated. But in this case, American was, as it said in that explanation, sort of being overly conservative just trying to check boxes, trying to probably in its mind harmonize things, right? And not have to have all these different exceptions and considerations. But in the end, when it comes to this, you've just got to be as accommodating as you can. And yeah, there'll be other times when in very specific circumstances, you'll have to adapt, but you should start by trying to accommodate your your passengers. And, and, And that's what American here is doing. And I'm sure when this rose to the highest levels of the company and and its executives heard what was going on. I'm sure the first question was, wait, is there is there some other way to be compliant with what Canada is asking? Because Canada, of all things, I'm sure as a country, was not 
trying to get to a point where American was going to ban some wheelchairs. That wasn't the point. It just well, Seth, I'm, I'm sure this is really going to surprise you. But in my career, I've made some decisions that with hindsight, I realized weren't exactly the right thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And I learned from those things, too. So I understand how American got there. And I think they've uh, responded appropriately here. <laughs> I do, too. Maybe, maybe we'll ask you for some examples later. First, though, <laughs> our first listener question Kyle of Minnesota writes, hi, Ben Ben and Seth, huge fan of the show. So much is still in flux in the airline industry, but with nine plus months of coronavirus under our belt, I'd be interested in hearing your takes on each of the four major U.S. airlines, American Delta, Southwest and United, and their strategies for weathering COVID-19 from blocking middle seats to slashing fares to attacking competitors hub. Each hubs, rather, each carrier has taken drastically different approaches. Which airline or airlines are positioning themselves the best in your eyes and which are misfiring? I'd love to hear your A through F grades for each and why. Thanks and keep it up. Uh, Well, Kyle, thanks for that. I mean, you've basically asked us to do something that would take longer than a whole other show. Maybe I'll be lazy next week and not write a script, right? We'll just we'll just start with Kyle's question and go through, uh, do a SWOT analysis of, of the four U.S. airlines. Great question. And I'm serious when I say we cannot comprehensively answer uh, that question here. But let's just, just take a stab, Ben. I guess one way to approach this is you could see certain airlines went into this in better shape than others and just had sort of more room to maneuver. Delta most recently announced that it would extend the blocked middle seats through the end of March, it's the only one doing that. The only no- notable airline in the U.S., big or small at this point, still doing that to that degree. But part of the point is that Delta went into this crisis in very good shape with a very good balance sheet. And it's just sort of able to do things from a very long term perspective, even though reasonable people can disagree about the benefit of that. There are people who would feel more comfortable flying next to an empty middle seat. I mean, how? Look, it, it, it's more comfortable, period, COVID or not, right, <laughs> to not have somebody sitting next to you. So, so you know, somebody's going to choose Delta. The other airlines are probably thinking, look, it, it's nice, but it's just not adding up to what it would take to justify it. But anyway, you sort of had – if you had to rank sort of the strength of these airlines going into it, it would be maybe Delta and Southwest, then United, then American. And I think that has informed some of what they've done. Am I right about that? And any other quick thoughts about – Kyle's question here, how, how the airlines have approached this and anything strike stick out at you as being particularly wise or not. I like that analysis, Seth. And I really like this question, Kyle. Thanks. If I, if I take his question and say, okay, but forget about how, what their strength was coming in, how have they acted once they were in? And I rank them that way. I think you did the right kind of ranking for them coming in. I'll tell you what I think about with that. I think American made a couple big missteps. Initially, they went out with lots of capacity, if you remember. And Vasu Raja, who's their revenue guy, sort of talked about, you know, hey, we're going to fly through this. And then they had to pull back a lot of that capacity. And then initially they were making statements like we're more domestic than Delta and United, so we have to put more out. And that was a misstep, I think. And that was unfortunate. They also really, really built up on the liquidity side, which you can't fault any airline for doing, but almost to the point where they're depending 
on a relatively quick recovery, that these vaccines come in place and maybe by next fall, people are traveling regularly again. Because without that, they're losing more cash every day than any other airline. So they've got a lot of liquidity. And you're saying it's because of just all the interest they're paying on on all the money they borrowed. Yeah. Well, that's right. And they haven't stemmed their cash loss as well as anybody else. So I would sort of give them a C or D, actually, because they're at the biggest risk of, you know, being in a cash crunch and maybe have to, you know, take some other drastic actions if, in fact, recovery isn't around the corner. Okay. On the other hand, Delta and Southwest have been aggressive in a real positive way. We've talked ad nauseum about Southwest going to Chicago and Houston, right? And that's a real positive thing for that company in terms of positioning themselves for stronger competition in the future. You've seen Delta be very aggressive on the fleet saying all these 777s are gone and all these 717s are gone, right? And they're, they're using this as a way to simplify their fleet and make their fleet more overall efficient. And they've been very aggressive about that. So I would give both of them, I mean, you said they were the strongest coming in, but they've also done the best job within COVID. Those are both airlines that have blocked seats, um, blocked middle seats also, which has been a good confidence builder to customers as well. So I'd give both of them an A actually. And United, I'd sort of put in between. United has done a number of right things, but I think that they they sounded a little arrogant and a little um, obnoxious when one of their people made the statement of middle seat blocking is just a PR strategy. I understood what that person was saying. And I actually kind of agree that a middle seat doesn't create social distancing, but it was kind of tone deaf to the reality of people's real nervousness and fears of flying. And I thought that that statement hurt the industry's ability to really rebuild traffic back. But from a network and fleet standpoint, I think United has done some good things in terms of moving their planes to places where people are actually going things. So I kind of give Delta and Southwest an A, United a B, and maybe American a C. That makes Probably sense. a longer answer than you wanted, Seth. No, I, I, the contrary. I kept having thoughts of all these different directions that, that I would love to go with this discussion, but uh, but with with limited time, we can't do it. Look, Delta, sort of tying back to something we discussed last week, opportunistic fleet buy, buying. Delta has said it's interested in the Max, right? And that would be interesting down the road to be able to look back in this at this if Delta does that and say, oh my goodness, Delta got the deal of a lifetime on narrow body aircraft. If that's how that ends up working out, taking off, taking some maxes off Boeing's hands. Uh, we'll see United also another, another move that might be that you might call arrogant early on. Remember United was very strict about not offering refunds early on that. Good point. If, even if it canceled on you, if the flight, if your, if your plans didn't change by more than six hours at point uh, uh, at first, even for flights that have been booked before all this. And, you know, I mean, now, now it's sort of all the airlines have harmonized that everybody understands, okay, you can, they'll be very flexible about your, about your plans changing, but a flight might cancel. And if your plans change by an hour, they're not going to give you your money back, that kind of thing, right? That's now. But at the beginning, American, if they canceled on you, United and your, fl- and your flight, well, yeah, well, what I was going to say, American, if your oh. plans changed by just 60 minutes or Delta, if your plans changed by, by just 90 minutes, no questions asked refund, whereas United was sticking with six hours. And I think that was another thing early on that in terms of just kind of angering consumers ended up being 
unnecessary, but that but they they quickly moved on from that. Well, uh, great question, Kyle. Uh, keep keep them coming, and maybe we'll try to get to some more of the answer to this in in uh, in next week's episode. Next, the show goes vertical. We'll explain, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. They're a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. That means they get the hotel rooms really cheap. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Adam writes, hey, guys, two questions. Uh, Recently, Lilium announced they would be building the world's first vertiport for EVTOL operations in Lake Nona, Florida, outside Orlando. Uh, Their aircraft won't be ready for certification until about 2024, but how do you envision future interstate vertical operations affecting regional airline travel? Uh, Second question, when is it okay to decorate an airport with Christmas decorations? (laughs) Mine has already started, and to me, it's tacky until after Thanksgiving. Have a good day. Tell you what, I'll take the second question, but you you take the first. You tell us all about uh, vertical takeoff and landing operations the answer is absolutely gotta wait until after thanksgiving but apparently nobody in the world listens to me because visit any mall or anything for the past decade and basically i think after about the fourth of july it seems to be okay to start decorating for christmas we drive our son to school right now seth and i'm thankfully he does actually go to a school i mean as opposed to virtual i mean right And we have the ability to drive through Georgetown in D.C. or go north across what's called the Chain Bridge in D.C. And yesterday I said, let's go through Georgetown. Let's see if they've done any decorations yet. And sure enough, all the wreaths are up, the big nutcrackers, they're all there. And it's not even Thanksgiving. Yeah. I'm a traditionalist like you, and it sounds like (laughs) Adam probably is. Wait till after Thanksgiving and then go for it. That's my feeling. <laughs> okay. So for, for EV doll, vertical takeoff and, and, and landing sort of operations, I think it's great that this is happening. I think it's real interesting technology, but I think we're years and years away from economically being able to make that work with a piece of equipment that can economically carry enough people and do a vertical takeoff or landing. Certainly, that creates the ability longer term to think about flights into tighter spaces, not having to use as much land or driving way out to the big airport with the long runway. But the technology is getting better like it is in lots of things. But while it's not the same thing like autonomous vehicles and things like that, I think we're just years and years away from that being really practical and making a true impact on regional kind of flying. Yes, there will be some operations. I think it's great that Lilium is doing this. I think it's great that companies are inventing these kinds of um, machines and people will try them. But before it sort of has any real impact, on commercial air travel, I think we're talking another generation or so. That's my sense. A listener who was actually more wrong about something than Ben redeems himself. More Airlines Confidential is next. 
Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. That's www.clearme.com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Ben, you, you sort of offhandedly said earlier that you've made a mistake or two in your career, made a decision or two that you wish you hadn't made. Anything come to mind? Well, the most obvious one, Seth, is there was a time when, you know, at Spirit, when our fares were all non-refundable and we sold travel insurance for people who wanted to add refundability, essentially, to their tickets. And we got a request for a refund from a military veteran who had been told by his doctor that it wasn't safe for him to travel. And he asked for a refund. And initially, our team denied him the refund. And I supported that and said, look, you know, it's, you know, he could have bought insurance. He didn't buy insurance. But boy, did that all blow up. And it showed an enormous insensitivity by the company and by me personally. And I ended up refunding the guy's ticket and Spirit made a donation to Wounded Warriors and we employed a lot of veterans and we talked to all of them and said, look, we we won't make that mistake again. And it was a case of sort of policy over practicality. And, you know, I learned from that just like American learned on the wheelchairs. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. You you learn and you don't make that mistake again. You make a different one, but not That's the right. same mistake. Oh, well, I'm back- sure I'll make a lot more mistakes, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We all will. Back to the mailbag now. John from Cincinnati writes, thank you for your thorough answer to my LaGuardia Delta terminal gate access question. To avoid further self-humiliation this week, I only have a comment to offer. So for anybody who doesn't remember, John had uh, said that Ben seemed to be wrong about the idea that there's no more exclusive use of new airport gates. And we said no. And I was I kind of went to an extreme on pointing out how wrong John was. It was just <laughs> that we were excited about being right for once, right? We're always being corrected by readers who are correct about the correction. And this one time, Ben was actually right about something. And and so I was just so excited about it. I didn't need to pile on John. But anyway, uh, John says, uh, the recent opening of Berlin's new airport, something we really haven't gotten to talk about in normal times. We would have talked a lot about this, but there's so much else going on in the world right now. I've been disappointed, John says, with the press coverage of the issues and delays, seems even the aviation press discussed the obvious and juicy problems, the unimaginable too short escalators. Uh, But I think if we as an industry are going to learn something from the Berlin issues, we need to ask why all these things went wrong and go back to the beginning of the uh, project. I think there are two underlying problems to which everything can be traced back. And unfortunately, I have to abridge John's message a little bit here. It's excellent, but it's long. He says, number one, it all started with the role the airport was supposed to fulfill, an international connecting hub. Uh, This was defined back in the early 1990s. Uh, These enthusiastic people envisioned connecting Berlin with the world, 
but they were not hindered by any understanding of aviation. (laughs) They did not listen to Lufthansa when it went on record that it would not connect there. They were already hubbing Frankfurt and expanding Munich. So early planners planned a hub, not an origin and destination airport, a different animal altogether. This later had to be corrected, ouch, during construction. Uh, Yeah, designing in the field, never a good thing in architecture. And number two, a famous local architect was hired to design the symbolically important Berlin terminal complex, even though he had no airport experience. Uh, He planned a clean, open interior with little accommodation for the shops and restaurants he detested or space for important but unattractive building systems like electrical sprinklers, smoke evacuation. So while under construction and already trying to change the design of the airport because of what he said in number one, uh, they needed to add all the rest of it. Delays mounted and uh, over time, of course, well, we know the rest of it. Things went downhill from there. Interesting, John, you may ask. This is John saying this, but what are the lessons again? So he says again, one, plan for what is needed by the airlines and two, build in flexibility to accommodate aviation's single constant, which is change. Keep up the mediocrity, John. (laughs) Excellent message. A lot to we could talk about with everything you said there, but not a lot of time to talk about it. Let me just ask you this quickly, Ben. His last point there, that build in flexibility to accommodate change. I I know you're not an architect, but you've, you've, you've liaised with airports over the years. I'm I'm sure airports came to you while you were running an airline and, and helping run other airlines saying, look, we have these ideas about this project, but we want to know what the airline's thinking and how committed the airline is going to be to, Oh, I don't know, uh, having a giant hub at Pittsburgh forever, (laughs) those those sorts of things, right? How, How do you as an airport balance the need to optimize for the thing being as good as it can be in terms of what you think you need, but also incorporate the ability to change because those seem like they work against each other, right? You could do something that's awesome for what you need today, but would be very inflexible, or you could do something that's very flexible, but wouldn't address the known needs. I think this is a great question. And it's a great point. Airports, unlike airplanes, don't move, right? So if you make a mistake, you can't just pick it up and put it somewhere else like you can with a flight that doesn't work, for example. But he's right about this. And I have a good friend who's actually the CEO of an airline right now, but I'm not going to say his name and you shouldn't either, Seth. <laughs> okay, I won't. I won't. Um, Promise. <laughs> but, but he has a funny statement which says there's two types of airports in the world. There's those whose costs are way too high and those who are getting their costs on the way to being too high. And his point is that Airports think about things that will look nice and will make them proud for their city and when they walk in and what they see, but what they don't necessarily all think. And to be fair, many of them do think this way. But what what they don't all think is that airlines want a really efficient, low-cost place to pull up the plane, get people off, put people on, and get out. Right, So they want to make the operation side open, easy, good access, not long taxi lines and clog ups and things like that. 
They want to make sure a gate's available when they get there. They don't want to pay ridiculous charges per passenger or per seat to operate at that airport. Everyone in the industry, for example, knows, for example, how expensive Toronto is, which is why most low-cost airlines fly to places like Hamilton or Niagara Falls or things like that. And so his idea is right in the way to build in flexibility is just keep things simple and keep the cost base as low as possible because that allows you to make changes. If you think, you mentioned Pittsburgh earlier, pre 9-11, they created a very innovative idea of a shopping mall inside the airport. And it was really heralded as a new way to think about airports, but it was all behind security. And when 9-11 happened, all of a sudden that mall just died like other malls have since died, right? And the the, the point of that is, while that was a great idea, it sort of assumed that the status quo in terms of security would stay forever. And assuming that the status quo around security, around access and things like that is going to stay forever and building monuments around that is a mistake. So keep, keep things simple, keep things low cost, if you're an airport and airlines will want to serve your airport that way. That's my sense. I think it's a good point John brings up. He points a lot of the faults in the building of the new Berlin airport, but Berlin's not unique in that sense, but, uh, but it's a good modern case of maybe not having the right priority in front, which is airlines want a, a, an inexpensive, very efficient platform to fly planes in and out and transfer people. And the people running Toronto seem to have done what they can to get the costs in line, but it's just that they're burdened by this these plans a few decades ago to build this Taj Mahal, as airlines have, have criticized it, that it is an airline lexicon, a bad thing, <laughs> building a Taj Mahal, never mind uh, what it is for, for travelers who, who go to India. And, uh, and unfortunately, you're sort of burdened with those, what you might call the, the, the sins of the past. And, you know, there's the old, I love misappropriating Don Rumsfeld sayings. And there was, <laughs> he had the one about the, the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And, and so the unknown unknowns are the ones you can't do anything about, but the known unknowns, that's what it's about, I guess, really designing for the things, you know, knowing that security is going to probably change again and you just don't know how, right? right. Those kinds of things. Enough flexibility for the the known unknowns at least. Well, do you have a question for us? You could call 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you could jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer wine is next, but first we want to thank Seabury Capital. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint 
and we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. Charlene of Rancho Palos Verdes, California is complaining about United. Charlene writes, I've never felt so unsafe on a flight since COVID began. The flight was absolutely filthy. Pretty sure it was not sanitized or cleaned prior to our boarding. The pockets in front of me had chunks of peanut butter from whoever was sitting there before. I was also shocked to see the flight was packed to maximum capacity. The gentleman behind me was coughing up a storm. With so many people on a flight, you can't tell me that not one person had COVID. I'm super afraid now and will not be flying with United. This is very alarming. All right, Ben. What do you think? That doesn't sound too pleasant i certainly wouldn't would not have wanted to be charlene but is that fine does it rise to a level of fine or is it a fine well there's this thing in life that we all deal with called confirmation bias right whereas where we look for data that supports what we want to believe is true right and charlene certainly saw a number of things on this flight peanut butter in the seats what she thought was a dirty plane, a customer coughing that all suggested to her as she was nervous about getting on the plane anyway. And for sure, I'm going to now catch COVID because of this. Factually, I'm thinking she probably wasn't in an unrealistically unsafe environment on the United airplane. On the other hand, I'm totally with Charlene on this one. I think it's United's responsibility, just like it's all airlines' responsibility right now, to convince customers that flying is safe and they can be safe on an airplane. So United should have been able to get the peanut butter out of the seat. The plane shouldn't be dirty. Yes, you can't stop someone from coughing, of course, but I assume that person was wearing a mask or at least hope that person was wearing a mask, which is United in all airlines policies. So if the the only thing is somebody on the plane was coughing, well, there's not much you can do about that. You don't have to have COVID to cough, right? So, but I'm actually with Charlene on this because I think United failed in their perception of safety in Charlene's mind. And the things she's talking about here are things they could address. She can't stop someone from coughing, but they can keep things clean. They can take a full airplane and manage that like it's a chaotic crowded spot or they can manage it professionally where everybody goes to their seat and does the right thing. And with the same number of people on the plane, some airplanes are going to look very calm and some are going to look very chaotic. And it sounds to me like in Charlene's mind, at least this flight was chaotic. So I'm actually with Charlene. The airlines have to convince customers that it's safe to travel again. And to do that, they've got to project calm, cleanliness and everything about the flights right now. Am I being too rough on United, Seth? No, I don't think so. I, I, I yeah, the, the bar is higher. Everybody understands that. And, and in normal times, it would just be gross, <laughs> the peanut butter. But right now, you just have to be more perfect than usual if, if you want anybody to to patronize you as an airline. You know, so, you know, Seth, I would I would thank Charlene, though, too. There's a lot of people who haven't flown since COVID began. So the fact that she went out and got on an airplane, I think is great. And she also doesn't say, I'm afraid now and will not be flying anymore. She says, I won't fly with United. So I hope she does try someone else and have a better, has a better experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 uh, gosh, all kinds of things right now. And you've got the CDC saying don't travel, right? So, so it's, it, there, there, there are 
all kinds of considerations here and the choice as long as airlines are selling airline tickets and flying to travel is a personal one uh, but then when you do it you certainly need the airline doing its part and and in this case again not to say that this is holistically united not doing the right thing as an airline but clearly uh the yeah i, I would not have been happy sitting in, in charlene's seat either for all the reasons she said well on final approach now that does it for airlines confidential this week please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions and remember we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Have a great, safe Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, stay safe. If you're staying home, think about travel. Talk to you soon. <laughs> this podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.